Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Orsin and Chapman pod on The Athletic, along with David. Uh, I'm joined today by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and Dom Fifield. Coming up, we'll discuss the news that football's biggest clubs are prepared to break away from the UEFA competitions and establish a new European Super League. We'll also take a look at Crystal Palace, head of what could be a summer of change. The Athletic has learned that Patrick Vieira is being considered as a replacement for Roy Hodgson. We'll also continue and look at how the England squad is shaping up ahead of Euro 2020. Is there enough of a goal threat beyond Harry Kane? Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll get great analysis, in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. So let's start with the big story then that developed on Sunday that 12 European clubs have agreed to form a new European Super League. You were up to what time, Adam, on this? 3.30, 4? Pretty much around that time, yeah, last night. Yeah, and your piece on The Athletic simply says European football is at war. You know, that might even be an understatement because it's war between some of the big clubs, clubs such as PSG and Bayern Munich who have not signed up to this yet. But I suppose to take it from from the beginning, um, 12 clubs have decided now is the time that they want to break away from the Champions League and create their own European Super League. So it would be a midweek competition. And the idea is that you would have far more games between the the size that we commonly consider to be the most famous in Europe. So the big six, as we call them in England, Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, Inter Milan, AC Milan, other clubs that have signed up. They want there to be 15 founder members. So I think in an ideal world, they would hope that they would be able to railroad or shoehorn uh, Bayern Munich, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, Borussia Dortmund into the mix as the other three founder members um, over the coming weeks or months. At the moment, that does not appear highly likely, but we'll see how how that resistance keeps up. And that's where we're at this morning. And we, we've, you know, we know it's being financed now by the American uh, investment bank, JP Morgan. So there's significant funding behind it. There is not yet confirmation of a broadcast partner, which is, I suppose, the next major step that, would need to, that we would need to see. The clubs have also said there would be a corresponding women's league. That's all they've said. We don't know anything else um, about what that will involve um, or how that will work, what the impact would be on the women's super league deal in, in the UK. So there's a huge amount of questions, not a huge amount of answers at the moment. But what we know is that UEFA are you know, exploring all avenues legally in terms of how they might be able to sanction the clubs, even possibly attempting to ban players who play for these clubs from appearing for their national team in UEFA competitions. So all sorts of threats going around, but an incredibly dramatic weekend for European football. 
Adam, if I wind this back to when the story broke yesterday, can you kind of explain to the people listening, you know, there was a feeling that I and many others had, here we go again. We've seen this so many times before. It's a threat. It's posturing. We're going to end up with some kind of compromise when everyone stays in the Champions League, but they get a bit more power. The clubs get to control more, which is their ultimate aim around football, around the commercial and broadcast side. But as the hours have gone on, and fair play for you staying awake to record this podcast, it seems that this is actually real, that this is happening. And is that accurate? And if it is, how is this actually going to logistically manifest itself? And can you explain to people what do, do these clubs actually break away from UEFA? This is a, a new entity that UEFA is sidelined from. And if they stay together, then surely the relationship is broken forever and they're the most uncomfortable bedfellows in sporting history yeah and it almost feels like you know when you do these stories it feels like you almost need a key at the end of an article or podcast to explain who is <laughs> uefa who is the eca who is you know all all these different organizations that are involved so uefa are the organization that run the champions league the europa league it would be the uefa conference league as well next season traditionally the, you know the organization that european clubs sign up to because they want to be involved in their elite competitions and then the funding is distributed throughout Europe and the funding that comes about through the Champions League, there's a degree of solidarity that means it goes down the pyramid. You then have the ECA, which is the European Club Association. That's an organisation that I suppose backs the interests of those clubs who most commonly compete in European competitions or who have aspirations to be in European competitions. That's the way that European football has been governed and run. Now, over recent years, the major clubs, the Manchester United, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Liverpool, they believe they are entitled to a far bigger slice of the pie. They say, we generate the interest, we generate the revenue, the biggest viewing figures are the ones where we're involved, pull us together more, and we can make more money. Um, and, and really, their argument is, if we're driving all of this interest, why do we have to share it with the rest of you? And they've wanted more power and more control. And there was a very tense meeting, um, I think only last month, where there was a huge disagreement between these major clubs and UEFA over who would have the commercial control of the Champions League. The major clubs believe they are best placed to sell and to market this product. You know, they say, look at the way we've sold ourselves all over the world. Give us this competition. We'll make it even bigger. UEFA are terrified of that because they think that's the start of losing control. And it looks like UEFA were going to just about get it over the line because they'd come up with this format change, which was the Swiss model. And, you know, even last month, Andrea Agnelli, the Juventus chairman, he described these reforms as beautiful as he is the ECA chairman or was the ECA chairman until about 12 hours ago. And only on Friday, the ECA came to what appeared to be a unified position to back these proposals. And it seemed like the UEFA Congress this week would go reasonably okay. It was going to be tense, but it would get over the line. And now the world's fallen in on, on all of them. So do we take it seriously? I mean, despite, you know, people I spoke to yesterday said, some people said it's just bluff and posturing. And based on everything we've seen in the past, all these threats over the years, I can understand why people would say that. I can also understand why people would say, this isn't a final document. It's just to start a conversation. And if you take it as the start of a conversation, maybe it leads to a, to a super league of sorts, but one that has UEFA backing or FIFA backing. Um, and it has a far more inclusive approach in terms of who gets into it or access to the competition. 
um, maybe making sure that, you know, whoever wins the major league each year is guaranteed entry rather than just based on your history as a club. Um, but then there's, you know, when I speak to the clubs involved late last night, they were saying, no, this is it. This is the document. This is what's happening. But as I kept putting back onto them, I said, if you were to say anything else to me, your negotiating tactics are finished straight away. So, you know, if you admit this is the start of a negotiation, then, then you've got no chance. So it's very difficult to know just how serious they are. But what we do know is they have bank, you know, um, investment banking financing, um, which is underwritten by JP Morgan. It's set against future broadcast revenues. I think that, you know, they have studied the trends of young people. They know that, you know, if you put PSG against Manchester United on the telly four times a season, that's going to drive a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of eyeballs. There will be a broadcast partner that would want to be involved. But how it comes about from now is very difficult to work out because if you take the Premier League in isolation, for example, the top six Premier League clubs, Man United, Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal, for them to compete in a, in a European competition, they that requires Premier League board approval. And as things stand, the Premier League are not prepared to support that. The bottom 14 clubs, as they've become known because we talk about this big six, and I know that annoys loads of football fans who will be listening to this screaming that West Ham are in the top four and Arsenal are useless and all of this sort of stuff. But they cannot do this uh, without the Premier League approval. And it then throws open the question, well, if they don't get the Premier League approval, are they prepared to walk out on the Premier League to actually just maybe start a whole new league altogether, which is not just a midweek European competition? And one of the interesting things on the Premier League approval uh, from some of the figures, Dom, that I have seen today is that for the clubs participating in this, they will get... 250 million a year was one of the figures that I saw compared to 70 million or so for the current Champions League. So if you're the Premier League, you're not going to sanction that anyhow because because it distorts the the competitive balance even further. I mean the other the other 14 might as well just go home in that situation if those six have got 250 million pounds more than the others to play with. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, it's it, it warps it beyond all recognition. Uh, that that is the reality of it, and that, but that's what they want. And, and it, there is an irony that, as as Adam says, that we talk about a big six, and yet only two of those six clubs are currently in the Champions League places. Well, and and only and only three of them have ever won the yeah. Champions, uh, Champions League or European Cup. Absolutely, Dom. It just underlines that it's nothing to do with the football. It's about money. I'm looking at all these statements being released by the Chelsea Supporters Trust, the Liverpool, the Spirit of Shankly, the Arsenal Supporters Trust, Manchester United Supporters Trust, Spurs Supporters Trust. They're all irrelevant as far as these guys are concerned because it's not about the fans that are going to walk through the gates at the London, you know, at the, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium or, or Stamford Bridge. And this is this is this is the global game. This is what the Premier League has wanted for ages. Let's get this game this game global. Well, actually, this is what happens when you put the game global. All the fans around the world, the millions and millions and millions of supporters. They, they latch on to the biggest clubs, the, the most glamorous names, and suddenly the supporter base that matters is based in, I don't know, Colorado, is based in 
Kuala Lumpur. It's not based in Manchester or London. The irony of 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 the banner in the Stretford End at the moment with Matt Busby's quote of football is nothing without fans. I mean, it could it couldn't be further from the truth from from these owners. You know, I said, I said it last night. I'll repeat it here. Their feeling is football is nothing without a streaming service. Yeah, and before Adam counters Dom's point, I just wanted to actually underline it. I remember vividly two or three years ago, speaking to a few of the executives at this top level uh, within European football. And they were explaining how, um, and this sounds brutal and it's not my view at all, the match-going fan inside the stadium, the locality of the club is becoming less and less relevant to these clubs. The global fan base, which they insist... exudes feverish support, like absolutely obsessive support round the clock, following their club, buying all their merchandise, signing up to all of their digital platforms. They are at the forefront of the minds of these executives because that's where they see the space for growth, the space for uh, money to be made to build their club's reputation, size, revenues. We've seen the 39th game, you'll remember, this is nothing new. They've they've always been thinking of how can we take our game to these fans who are prepared to pay bigger money than we're receiving from our fans at home who come into the stadium, they buy the odd shirt, bit of food at the match, sing a few songs, grumble. They like how these fans around the world, they don't grumble as much as, as us fans at home. They're seen as the new wave of fans, the future, the markets to tap into. And those executives I've spoken to over the years have been unashamed about that. They've been completely nonplussed when they've explained this to me. And it's a hunger to tap into something that they've not already got. And they don't fear the repercussions. What Dom said there, the guys behind this, they're not sitting in the States and around the world now watching the Twitter backlash and getting upset about it. They're hard-nosed businessmen and women who probably prepared for this backlash and they're monitoring it and they probably think, I don't know, I don't think the PR around this has been great so far by any means. So that's maybe something that they've got wrong. But in terms of the 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 path that they're on, Adam, you may tell me otherwise, they probably think that this launch has, has been okay so far. The battle is on and now let's um, get our lawyers together, get our money together, get our broadcasters together and let's start to push this forward now. And the war is only just getting started. I was at a conference a couple of years ago where the chief executive of the of the European Club Association, Charlie Marshall, he gave a talk to um, a lot of clubs that were in the room. It was a it was a, a, a event hosted by Transfer Room, which is a it's like a tool where clubs can almost see which players are transfer listed or listed for loan, and they and they're able to talk to each other on this app without talking to agents. But Charlie gave this talk. He said, during the 2018-19 season, the live match audience for Champions League football dropped from an average of 2 billion during the previous three-year cycle to 1.3 billion in the last campaign. In a single year, therefore, the Champions League experienced a traditional television audience fall of 35%, the Europa League 17%. That explains why there's been a lot of anxiety around the Champions League needs reform. We need a new idea. And then you have to bring in what's the domestic in, and the international rights situation on a, um, for the domestic leagues. And in Italy, well, they've just signed up with zone, but it was a disastrous 
um, round. It was less than the previous round. Germany, 5% down. The French television rights deal is a mess. Um, I think the next Premier League rights deal, when it comes along, it probably won't be as good as the previous one. So there's a feeling of that sense of being we're on the up, up, up with this combination of a, uh, a domestic league combined with the Champions League. Is it working? Is it working for us in the way, in the, you know, in the nature of growth that we need it to? And are we then utterly reliant on getting into the Champions League each year to maximise our revenues? For a long time, those Premier League clubs, the top four, as we used to call them, they pretty much had access. So therefore, when Juventus or Bayern Munich or Real Madrid would say, let's go and have a Super League because our TV deal isn't as good, the Premier League clubs would say, well, actually, we've got great international TV deals. We have more money than all of you. And now they're starting to think, is that sustainable for us? Is that pattern going to continue? And you're right in terms of, you know, their priority is the global fan. But I think what they are forgetting when they analyse young people and a digital audience, and they've never spoken to young people. I mean, these are, these are generally old men over the age of 60 uh, who have never spoken to anyone who doesn't look like them. Um, but they... Um, they are just, they don't speak to these people. So they don't know what they want. And actually the global appeal of the Premier League has been at jeopardy. Americans have become interested in it because in their own sports models, there's no promotion, there's no relegation. And then they see this really exciting product in the Premier League where anything all of a sudden feels like it can happen. And now they're about to take that away. And that's going to have a, in terms of global interest, well, if there's, you know, I mean, we know what the game's going to be every year. Where, where is the excitement? Where is the competitive spirit? It's not sport. That is not sport. And that's, that's not taking a sort of an editorial position on it, but that is to fundamentally alter the nature of sport where performance does not impact what happens to you. I've got two really important questions, I think, that I want to put to Dom, um, especially with kids at an age where they're sort of getting into football supporting properly. Is all this anger and noise for want of a better word over the last hours from all of us guys in the media and at this sort of adult level is this going to be bothering them or are they looking at the next generations and what are those next generations thinking in terms of the fact that maybe they do want to see these big clubs facing off every week and it's just that us lot don't like change and we don't like the status quo being rocked and actually they're just tapping into the future and they're going to soak up these bullets to focus on the, the the future generations and secondly how big a gamble is this in terms of they're banking on the global fans and everyone lapping it up but what if they break away and they realize that the interest isn't there in watching the same teams playing each other every week do they then come groveling back to us and the uefas and fifas of this world well, the, the latter question, I mean, you'd, you'd like to think they would burn their bridges and that they wouldn't be allowed back. But the reality is that this is this is going to damage the Premier League product more than... I mean, the Premier League's threatening, threatening you know, expelling clubs, etc. is completely empty, empty threat, really, because the Premier League without Manchester United, without without Arsenal, without all those six clubs is is diminished as a product, um, unfortunately. The first point is really, really interesting, David. And, and I, I'm speaking as somebody who was trying to work this out. I was in my early teens when the Premier League broke away from the Football League. And 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 I think I was excited at the time at, at the prospect of what was going to come and, and, and the sort of the new razzmatazz and the sort of, 
you know, the more glamorous product that it was creating. And it, it undoubtedly was a better product. And that's coming from a supporter of a, a football club that finished third in the old first division two years before the, the Premier League started. And and experienced for, for one year, um, you know, everything from a, a new broadcaster, um, a new experience that, that, that the Premier League was. And over the last 30 years, we've all become very used to that. And this is... I suspect there are parallels to be drawn now with uh, this breakaway to that breakaway. Now, now I've got a young, uh, just just before, he's, he's 12 years old at the moment. He's a, he's a Crystal Palace fan as a, as, as a son. Uh, he's, he, 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 likes, he likes watching Palace. But if I'm honest, whenever he cracks, up his, cracks open his Xbox, he plays as PSG or he plays as Barcelona. He doesn't play as Crystal Palace really that often so i think there is an element of the youth of today liking the or, or, or gravitating towards the big clubs and 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 the, yeah the super the super glamorous but i don't think that's i mean look in his case it's not a real situation at all because he's not going to go and see any of these guys he wouldn't he wouldn't stay up and watch a a psg or barcelona game live on the television he's just he's just playing it on xbox um but it's all sort of part and parcel of the same thing, really. I think it's all, you know, the, the glamour that's associated with all these teams is a bit computer gamey. It's not, it's not reality. It's not going through a turnstile. It's not, and and for us as a generation, that is what football is. I mean, even for Adam as a Manchester United fan, um, based nowhere near Manchester, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is still going to your home team, isn't it? It's going to watch Manchester United play and and being there in person if you can. And and there's there's a there's a bond between a fan and his and his club and his his or her club, and I'm not sure that the God, I'm going to sound old now. I'm not sure the new generation has that same bond. It's a different thing. I think it's very dangerous to lump all young people in yeah. together here, yeah. and 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 I have a 18 year old boy and 13 and seven year old daughters, but if I took my 18 year old boy who is the football mad one yes that that's the fair point on the xbox i think uh, uh dom and and who they play or you know or which team you choose but that's partly because it's very difficult to win anything as crystal palace on on the xbox <laughs> when you're playing some of the other teams and i think that has a that probably has a in all seriousness i think that has a part to play yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. um but my 18 year old is furious about this and you know he's he, he's a Watford fan, but he also looks out for Altrincham and he looks out for United through through my heritage. But he is Watford through and through, and he would take Luton Watford on Saturday every single day over Bayern Munich against Paris Saint Germain. I don't think you can lump them all in together, and I do think there is a as we touched on earlier, it might be a geographical situation rather than a generational situation here. And I think the heritage maybe for us in this country with our clubs is passed on a lot in the same way as it might be in Germany. And and But yet the attachment to clubs globally, to European clubs globally, is very, is very different. And it might be more transient from fans in, you know, Scandinavia or or. Asia or the Middle East or whatever it is, and and I think it, I think it's a geographical thing for these guys more than a generational thing. And on that on that basis, Adam, I do wonder whether Bayern Munich are the club that could kill this. There's three things that I think could kill this at this point, and 
the first, as you say, it's Bayern Munich and PSG. Bayern Munich and PSG, as of yesterday, um, because I'm aware this is moving very, very fast and we could look very, very stupid in an hour's time. Um, but Bayern Munich's position yesterday appeared to be that they couldn't make this work due to the strength of feeling in Germany, um, due to also uh, issues around the ownership rules um, in that the fans would have to have a say in, a, in the decision. And, and this feeling of, you know, that they have a, a sense of loyalty to the national team. I think, um, you know, when you think about to the National League and I think, you know, Hansi Flick, I think, is going to go and manage Germany, isn't he, this summer? I think Germany's probably the only country really still where the biggest club would lose their manager to the national team. And I think there is this feeling in Germany of we're all in this together still a little bit. With regards to PSG, well, their opposition is complicated. Um, their president, Nasser Al-Khalafi, is, he runs B in Sport, which is the uh, Qatar-based media company. And they have huge, a huge amount of money invested in the Champions League. It would be calamitous for B in Sport if the Champions League, UEFA's version, no longer existed and all of a sudden you have, I don't know, Amazon streaming this new Super League. So if you're very cynical, you would say that's why they're opposed. On the other hand, though, you know, people who I know who know Nasser well have said he's actually someone who's pretty loyal. Um, he's very close to Seferin. He's on the UEFA ex- uh, Executive Committee, part of the ECA, and he's shown a loyalty so far that the likes of Ed Woodward and Andrea Agnelli have absolutely not shown. I mean, they've been nakedly betraying, um, you know, Seth, uh, Alexander Seferin, the UEFA president, over the last few days. So PSG and Bayern, if, if those two clubs were to fall in, I think it's game on at that point because you are, strugg- you are really struggling there and you have real momentum over several days. The story builds up. The second issue is we still don't know who the broadcast partner is. I'm being told, watch this space. There's going to be an announcement. Something might come soon with this. In Italy on Sunday, there were suggestions that DAZN would be the partner. DAZN have since distanced themselves from that. Not not entirely convincingly, but they have. And it then becomes, okay, well, do they get one of the tech giants involved? Is it a Netflix or an Amazon or an Apple or Facebook or something like that? But that doesn't really fit into the pattern of those business models. So I'm not sure where that, who that broadcast partner really could be. I mean, certainly Sky Sports have not been involved in the discussions. I think we could tell watching Manchester United against Burnley yesterday, the tone of the coverage, you know, from Gary Neville, from Martin Tyler, the fact they did it at half-time and full-time, they would not appear to have had a stake in, in the Super League working out well. So that's the second point, broadcast partner, PSG and Bayern. And then the third point is, what if the players speak out? And that's what we're waiting for now. Is there a player out there, a real leading player who's prepared to say, Actually, I quite like it how it is. Because we're recording this before Leeds-Liverpool tonight. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer looked like he was a rabbit caught in the headlights after after the game yeah. yesterday. Um, and no announcement had been made, actually, to be fair to, to Ole. Yeah. When it'd be interesting, Klopp's interviews will be interesting tonight, won't they? They will. And, and it was, it's almost fallen below the radar. The fact Sir Alex Ferguson released a statement last night yeah. conde- condemning this saying, you know, he said in his statement, Everton have built a building a £500 million stadium so that they can get into the Champions League, so they can challenge, so their fans can dream and be part of this experience. And you've got lots of clubs like that, West Ham, Aston Villa, uh, Everton, Wolves, Leeds, who are all, Leicester, all trying to break into that, whose reason of being almost becomes extinguished if you have a Super League in terms of being upwardly mobile. 
And Alex Ferguson comes out with a statement. The first comment he's made on a live Manchester United situation since retiring in 2013, probably the first time he's robustly criticised the Glazer family. And it just didn't matter to the, to, the people who, to the people who were deciding this. It just didn't seem to register. Yeah, there was a tweet from our colleague James Pierce quoting Jurgen Klopp in 2019 saying, I hope this Super League will never happen. With the way the Champions League is now running, football has a great product, even with the Europa League. For me, the Champions League is the Super League in which you do not always end up playing against the same teams. So when you talk about Ferguson there and Mark asks about the players, like we've got key people within these clubs and within this industry who have been very vocal against it. And I'd be fascinated to see now if some of their positions are in jeopardy, whether they want to be involved in this anymore. Mark mentions the players. Well, players come and go, but yeah, equally, they are the stars. They are the cast list of this act. And I presume, given some of the determination and the arrogance of the people who are driving this forward, that they'll try and continue sort of unabated but those are really serious issues to to think about it sounds like you know if if the super league was to come off the the clubs who are competing in it could get four times as much as the winners of the champions league that means a lot of money for players that's a lot of money for for managers you know to be brutally cynical the richest players could have could be about to become even richer but then there's also talk of salary caps within that or uh, potential for um, some sort of financial fair play but uh, you know the, the players at Manchester United would probably become richer but how rich do you need to be at this point? When Mark was talking about your Watfords, your Lutons, your Altringhams this feels to me to be an elite war and actually and we don't know the trickle down effect they're promising loads more money for the pyramid etc but actually are the fans across the english game who we've seen such an outcry from now is it again a, a problem that it hasn't been communicated properly at this point the pr has been bad around it because would it actually affect people to the extent that they're fearing initially well i think it would affect any club who wishes to have a dream of becoming competitive and I think that is a real fear. You know, people have been comparing it to the launch of the Premier League in 1992. I think that's, I think that's a really disingenuous comparison because that was never aimed at making it a closed shop. That was never aimed at removing promotion, removing access, removing relegation. It was, you know, yes, it was going to favour the biggest clubs, but it was never this cynical. It was never like this. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a massive issue with the PR you know, the story broke on Sunday morning. Great story by uh, Martin Ziegler at the Times, New York Times as well. And then there's just this vacuum because all these guys who have such big plans and are plotting, they're not talking. They're not, they're not coming out to express their vision. And if they want this to work, I think they have to do that. Um, and, you know, I've said that. Hearts and minds, hearts not and cloak and dagger. Exactly. Um, and you have to have the confidence to express the vision. And I think, you know, even just those few hours where Gary Neville and Roy Keane were able to set the tone of British coverage on television and it get to go around the world, I think that's going to make a real difference. You know, it was the same with Project Big Picture, they didn't come out, they didn't express it, and, and that's what happens. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Okay, now I've done some gear changes uh, in my time in this <laughs> this industry, uh, but and we will have more, have more on the whole European Super League on the Business of Sport podcast on Thursday with Matt Slater. But well, and I'm not laughing, Dom. I'm not right, but well, I am actually because because, well, I because <laughs> from talking about that to who might replace Roy Hodgson. Uh, as Crystal Palace manager, because you do have a line in your column, Dave. Dom, stop it. Before we bring Dom in, you do have a line on it, David. Yeah, well, if there's uncertainty about the uh, existence of Premier League football, I don't know if there'll be a Crystal Palace um, managerial process at all. But anyway, we know Roy Hodgson is out of contract in the summer. No news yet on whether that will be extended again. He's 73 years old now. He's been at Palace since September 2017. And there seems to be a growing feeling in the game that this time Palace will make a change. I think they finished 14, 11th, 12th, 14th under his uh, management, now currently 13th. And of course, as they should be doing, it's prudent to be looking at contingency plans uh, if he's going to either... Uh, be let go or decide himself that he wants to leave. And so they've been considering a number of potential candidates, the likes of um, Sean Dye, Sheddy Howe, Frank Lampard, Steve Cooper, Valerian Ishmael, all of those well-documented. And, and we explain in the column today that among the names they're considering is also Patrick Vieira. Um, now, we spoke about him on here a while ago because he was in the frame for the Bournemouth job when Jason Tindall was sacked. They ended up going with Jonathan Woodgate. Uh, he's been out of work since leaving Nice in December. He was sacked there. His only previous managerial experience came with uh, New York City FC and at a lower level with Manchester City's elite development squad. He interviewed twice for the Arsenal job after Arsene Wenger and Unai Emery. Uh, also, there was some interest from Newcastle as well. And I don't know that he would be uh, a leading contender for Crystal Palace, but in terms of um, considering all of their options, he's an available option. Uh, he obviously has got a great record in English football as a player, not in management uh, so far. But yeah, it's one that we hadn't heard about before and we now know is is in their thinking. Dom? I mean, look, I do anticipate Roy Hodgson leaving um, and it's only right that Palace explore as many options as they possibly can. The one thing that, that's slightly unnerving about about this is the the real diversity in styles of football that these these candidates appear to offer up doesn't suggest to me there's a sort of consistent philosophy necessarily um, in terms of the approach of the club and as in what they want the new manager to how they want him to play, how how what he thinks the, the playing staff is going to look like in, next season. And I know there's an opportunity there on the playing side because they've got 12 players out of contract. Not all of them, not all of them will leave. I'm sure a handful of those guys will, will remain at the club. And when you sort of consider, you've got the, the extremes of the sort of high press and a high energy Valerian Ismail type style. And then Sean Dyche on the sort of low block, gritty, survive first and foremost um style of fight i mean that that's 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 pretty much two ends of the spectrum and i suspect that ultimately ultimately they, they go for somebody with premier league experience and somebody whose style of football is going to be most appropriate for the players left in that squad for next season and in, in that context i would imagine that sean dyche would, would emerge as 
the favourite if he can be prized out of Burnley. And it, of all the candidates there, he's probably going to be the most expensive to get hold of. I always think there are, there are two things that happen in football. One, whenever a club remove a long-serving manager, this isn't the Crystal Palace case, I remove a long-serving manager, um, somebody always quotes Charlton get rid of Alan Kerbishley. And whenever, and oh, careful what you wish for. And the second thing is whenever Crystal Palace think about a new manager at the moment, or it's even mentioned over the last three years, people always go back to the De Boer reign and how they tried something different. That, that on the one hand seems quite unfair, but on because that's one experiment that didn't work. So why would you not try something different again? But secondly, I wonder how much what happened with the but even though it was only for eight games, wasn't it? Eight was it eight? Still, it was only four league games. Four league games still hangs over the club. They were scarred by it. They were scarred by it. it it's I mean, and that was the last appointment they made prior to parachuting Roy Hodgson in. I mean, we, we, I know. It's four years, but you know it was it was De Boer and then Hodgson, and I think that the it will still feel fresh in the in the mind for Steve Parish. But the the fit wasn't right at the time, and and maybe the manager who came in, Frank De Boer, his his the way he was thinking about playing football and the, and the way he he was so wedded to one philosophy, and the squad that he had was completely inappropriate for that. Um, that was it was just a, a poor fit. So. But I, I do think that the ramifications of that still, still rumble on at Crystal Palace. When you when you talk about long term manager, this this is a long. Roy Hodgson has been a long term appointment. He's he's the longest serving Palace manager since Steve Koppel. But I don't hear, I don't hear as many people saying to Palace fans, maybe be careful what you wish for, in, as they did, as they did with Charlton, as they did maybe with Ipswich and Mick McCarthy and and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, maybe the, they are. The, I don't Hodgson know. has brought up the. He has brought up the. Yeah. Uh, be careful, wishful, wishful thing. He actually, he actually used that phrase in a, in a press conference um, quite recently um, when he was asked about his his future and and and. But I, 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 this is a strange situation because it's 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 being played out in a, in a period where fans have been absent from from the stadium. They haven't. They feel disenfranchised. They don't feel part of it all. I think that's made some of the emotions that are expressed, whether that be on social media or even with, you know, I think one of the fan groups put a banner outside the training ground at one point when Palace were playing particularly stodgy football in the middle of the season. I mean, it's it. No one feels part of it all, and I think that's 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 really made everything feel a lot more extreme than it should be. Uh, and I mean, I'm I'm very, very much of the sort of pragmatic. Supporter, but having having seen Palace almost go to the wall twice in my lifetime, I sort of feel as if um, uh, I, I I am more cautious than maybe I'm going to go down the same younger generation of fans thing. But there is a generation of Crystal Palace fans that just think we're a Premier League club. And this is a bit the ninth season in the Premier League next year, which is unprecedented in the club's history. Little little do they know, Dom. How little, <laughs> little do, do they, they know. I feel so old after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, I mean, we talked to, about the potential Super League and, and Dom, I guess there's quite a bit of a parallel at Palace with fans sort of trying to hold dear their club, also their style of play, and that being a big factor in what, type of manager they want and then on Palace's side they kind of want to keep up with the bigger guns in in football and they want their American 
uh, co-owners to invest in the club and help build that new stand and stay in the Premier League and enjoy a share of the riches while at the same time remembering who they are and where they come from is quite a tricky dynamic going on there. Absolutely. And they have invested heavily in the academy, which is the first sort of legacy really of this period in the in the Premier League. A £20 million Category 1 academy is going to... I mean, that will safeguard that and hopefully hopefully ensure that, that, that some of the local talent in South London does end up at Crystal Palace rather than at Chelsea um, and Arsenal, etc. Um, but the, the, there's the main stand, yeah. They need to develop it. And I do find that the whole, in the context of the Super League, I'd be intrigued to find out what the American owners, uh, Blitzer and Harris, actually think of that concept because I imagine that when they came in they were all for the Premier League being a closed shop with no, no relegation at all to, because that's that's basically been their philosophy ever since they'll only seem to spend money in in terms of transfer fees when the club is in serious danger and that, that was only in one window in the, in the in the January of 2017 when they invested heavily that in that window um, and arguably Roy Hodgson um, has been he may have benefited from having four very good players that were signed then on his hands, but but also the, the financially the club haven't been able to enter the market vigorously and aggressively in the period since throughout his tenure as a legacy of that spending in that January. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. And just to finish the pod this week, time for uh, On The Plane, our weekly feature with the illogical title, looking at how the England squad is shaping up ahead of Euro 2020. This is presuming that all of them will be allowed to play and and some of them aren't banned by uh, UEFA. (laughs) Anyhow, Harry Kane hobbled off at the weekend. Um, If he's unavailable, let's let's start with you, Dom. Do England have a reliable backup plan? They don't have a like for like. I think some have staked their, their their claim for involvement. You could argue that Dominic Calvert-Lewin's burst of form at the start of the season and indeed his, his performances for England in some of their qualifying games, that would be the, the closest they would have for like for like. Um, there are other options, I guess, Ollie Watkins, Danny Ings, etc. But I suspect that ultimately it would probably be a more fluid front uh, combination, a three maybe, with Marcus Rashford possibly playing centrally. Um, and any any combination of of Sterling, Foden, Sancho, if he's available and and uh, and selected, that that type of player um, coming in. So maybe not the out and out centre forward um, that 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 Kane has been. Uh, Adam, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The last few weeks, just seeing Mason Greenwood really hit form uh, for Manchester United, and you look at 
you know, I think Gary Neville made this point a few weeks ago on Sky, you know, if you want someone who you think is going to finish a chance in the last 20 minutes of a game, I'd probably trust Mason Greenwood um, above most other English strikers actually to take that chance. Um, and I know Greenwood has been out of the reckoning after what happened with him and Foden in Iceland, but if Foden can be back in the reckoning, then Greenwood can probably be back in it as well. His, his burst may have come just too late to get in the squad. And I, th- I think Dom's right. I think if Kane wasn't fit, it might become something like Sterling as a false nine or Foden as a false nine, or they've got so many players who can play in those wide or number 10 positions. There's probably a way of making it work. It's just, can you coach that system in the time that, that you have together with England? I'm not sure. You've got Ollie Watkins who auditioned quite well. Um, Bamford seems to have missed out now, despite a, a really impressive season. Calvert-Lewin's had injury problems of his own uh, and he's not prolific you know, losing Kane would be an absolutely monumental blow to England's hopes. And I do, like Adam, wonder if they actually rejig things because the wealth of attacking talent is really exciting. But Southgate hasn't prepared for that. So it would have to be almost like uh, makeshift and sporadic. And um, <laughs> we've got no experience of seeing England try doing that. Um, I suspect that will, you know, Kane's quite a quick healer. We've not had a prognosis for his injury yet, but he he walked off. It, it didn't seem, famous last words, to be terrible. He's had a lot of injury problems, but <laughs> I think the nation is just keeping everything crossed that he will be fit and we won't have to have that problem. I mean, he is a quick healer, Dom, isn't he? As David says, but he also might want to be involved even if he's not, fully fit. We've been there before with him. We've also been there with other England Towers men over the years. And history suggests that it doesn't work if you're not if you're not playing regularly going into the major tournament um, in the summer, uh, you, you don't hit the ground running in the tournament. In, in fairness, the last few times England have tried that and taken a semi-fit player to a tournament. They've only really featured in the latter stages of the group stage and England haven't really progressed much further than that anyway. So but it's a, it would be a it would be a big decision for Gareth Southgate to omit Harry Kane um, to if he if he was keen to play, mm. which he, as David says, he would be, he really would be. But he, you know that that would be that would have to be a national manager showing unbelievable strength of of conviction um, to to leave him out. I mean, there are other question marks over him as well, aren't there? I mean, that's that's the other thing in all of this. He, <laughs> Gareth Southgate doesn't want Kane's future being a distraction either, does he? No, and I don't think it will be, actually, um, despite, and we've reported it in depth, um, about what Harry Kane may or may not want. Um, I think it's incredibly unlikely, um, and people I speak to suggest no chance that he's going to be allowed by Daniel Levy to leave this summer, nor are clubs going to come forward with the sort of money that would tempt him to part with Kane and therefore despite it being a legitimate talking point I don't think it's going to overshadow England's Euros in any way and also I don't think Kane would let it because he is the ultimate professional and look we have seen these scenarios before but with someone's someone of Kane's sort of level of play his record his maturity his leadership qualities even if that did come up I would back Kane to just continue scoring the goals as he always does. When he has had this succession of injuries, I think, was it earlier this season, he did both ankles. I really wondered, 
you know, is Kane's injury record starting to catch up on him? In the first couple of games back, he just wasn't quite himself. And you wondered, is is it all going to start to go wrong for him? And he's gone and haven't had an even better season. He's really actually pleasantly surprised me that he looks better than ever. And he's turning 28 this summer. He's got hopefully a good few years of him uh, ahead of him to chase down Alan Shearer's Premier League goal scoring record. I think Kane um, and his club future will not have any bearing on England's Euros chances. Okay, more on the plane on next week's pod and over on the Athletics YouTube channel. Uh, Adam, Dom, uh, thank you uh, very much. That's it from myself and David. Thanks for listening. Back next week uh, and we'll be back on Thursday with the Business of Sport podcast. wonder what we'll be talking about then. Bye. The Athletic.